Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. You know what I mean? It just doesn't compute, you know? The law is the law. Peter, this is in our hands. I mean, it really is. People were there. We will continue to raise our voices. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. I think we'll all be up at 6 o'clock on Sunday morning to see what Kelly Harrington does. Uh, I have a sneaking feeling she'll do it, you know. She's just a great bit of stuff. A great, great bit of stuff. That box that she'll face in the final is a tough operator. A very tough operator. Totally different fighter to Kelly. But I just have a very good feeling about it. We'll be hearing from Kelly's family a little bit later on this morning. But first of all, uh, before we do any of that and look at the happiness of the Olympics, let us go to what was described yesterday in the courthouse in Mallow as a tragedy beyond comprehension. They were referring, the coroner was referring to the events that led to the Canturk murder-suicide. This is the story of Mark O'Sullivan, Dermot O'Sullivan and Tyg O'Sullivan. In the family home in Raheen near Kenturk on October 26th of last year, Mark was shot dead by his brother and his father, who subsequently took their own lives. The inquest was held yesterday and uh, heard about just an awful breakdown in relationships in the family and a will and just a terrible, terrible sequence of events. Um... Cork's 96 M's Maureen Tuig was there. Maureen, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Yeah, you, you mentioned the, what the coroner said there, Dr. Michael Kennedy, describing, you know, the circumstances, a terrible sequence of events, and that it's just hard to make sense of it all. And in court yesterday and listening to what went on, and as you said, the, the breakdown, you know, that leading up to the tragedy on October 26th. So I have some information here that... You know, I suppose there was a jury there and they returned a verdict of unlawful killing for Mark. He was 26. Um, his 23-year-old brother, Jeremy, and 59-year-old father, Ty, they both died um, as a result of self-inflicted gunshots that took their own lives. And their late mom, 
and their wife of Tyke, um, the late Anna Sullivan, she's since passed away. Uh, she'd received a, a terminal cancer diagnosis in early 2020. Um, so I suppose in, Can you go the through the timeline for us, Maureen? It might be it might be worth going going through as much as you have about the timeline. Absolutely, absolutely. So I suppose you know there was a series of statements that Anne had made to the Gardaí, um in the days after all of this unfolded at the farmhouse at Raheen in Asalas in Kanturk. And I can tell you, I suppose, what, what Anne recalled about the, the time. So as uh, she said on Sunday, October 25th, which was the day before, herself and Mark returned to the family home. And uh, after about 10 minutes on that evening, Germans and Tide came in. Now, she did say there was a tension there, there was a coldness between them. And then Germans and Tide, they left in Tide's car and, and she went to bed at around 8pm. She got up in the middle of the night. Dermot was, you know, asleep on the couch or appeared to be asleep on the couch. The TV was on. So uh, she had been in Dublin herself with Mark. She was having surgery as part of her cancer treatment. And when they returned to Cork, they'd stayed with her cousin for a number of days. And she was anxious to get home. So it was the Monday morning then. It was around 6 a.m. That was the, the October bank holiday weekend. It was bank holiday Monday. She told Gardy that she heard movement. And she did think, I suppose, for her family that it was quite early for a bank holiday. So she got up, she put on her dressing gown and her shoes, and she went out of her bedroom and she saw Tyg and Dermot um, with, with guns and they were facing into the bedroom where Mark was. And she asked them, what have they done? And they each left off another shot in front of her. And Mark was shot seven times um, during the incident. And I suppose to put it in context, there was a dispute involving the will. She wanted, Anne wanted to split the farm between her sons, but, but Dermot, he wasn't happy with this. He felt that, that he should get more. Yeah. Um, so I suppose going back to October 26th, she went to get her phone and, and Dermot, her younger son, he took it off her. Uh, she said that they seemed agitated um, and they both left the farmhouse, both of them being Dermot and Tyg. Uh, before she left the house, she told Mark, you know, to hold on and, and that she would go and get help. Um, he was on the floor, he had blood on him, you know, there was slime around his mouth and the, the guard, found his body or Dr. Margaret Bolster, when the assistant state pathologist, when she was there, she gave evidence that when she went in, you know, he was lying on the ground um, and he was found with between the bedside locker and there was bunk beds in the room. So he was found between the bottom bunk and the bedside locker. Now, so Anne then went to the gate and the gate had a new padlock on it um, and Dermot and Tyke were outside the gate. Now, Dermot was banging something on the ground, which she presumed could have been her phone to prevent her from, you know, reaching help. So she went back to the house and she went out the side and through the fields to the neighbour's house. She stayed in by the ditches in order to stay out of sight because she didn't know where Ty and Dermot were going to go. Um, so I suppose looking at their relationship, they got married in Rome in 1993. And, and Anne said that Ty's of the future included watching their kids get married and have kids of their own. But as we know now, this whole family unit are, are gone, and it's just so it's so such a tragedy. So she she got to her neighbour's house that was Anne Cronin. Anne Cronin was in court yesterday for the inquest. Yeah. And she got there around was say seven or seven thirty, and Miss Cronin, the neighbour, said she feared for her own safety and that of her family because they didn't know where Dermot and Tyke were at this stage. But Anne said that you know she didn't think that they followed her, uh, so they contacted the emergency services, and before the guard arrived at the scene. They heard it. She heard at least one gunshot. Um, so also, I suppose yesterday at the inquest was Anne O'Sullivan's first cousin Louise. Just, uh, all of these, all of the information you've just shared with us, Maureen, yeah. is from statements that the late Anne, Anne 
gave to Gardaí after this tragedy? Absolutely, in the days after. And they said that she made them over a number of days because of her, you know, her deteriorating health condition and that she wasn't able, I suppose, to, to make one full one. So they were made over over a number of days. Um, I suppose I'll come back to, to Louise Sherlock in a moment. Going back, I suppose, to the day of the, the you know, and, and the sequence of events on that day, it was Gardy found Mark's body in a bedroom at the farmhouse. That was just before 12.30 on the October the 26th. And the bodies of Tyg and Dermot were found just over an hour later in a field. And the field around 500 metres from the family home. And they both had self-inflicted gunshot wounds. And as I mentioned earlier, um, the assistant state pathologist, uh, Dr. Margaret Bolster, uh, conducted post-mortems um, on the three bodies. Now, there was a letter found in the pocket of Dermot's jeans and there was a letter found in Tyke's jacket pocket. These were both addressed to Anne. Now, we didn't hear about the contents of those letters, okay. but there was a, an unsigned letter was found in a pharmacy bag and Forensic Science Ireland I suppose examined it and they say there is strong evidence to suggest that it was written by Mark. Now, they did read that letter into evidence yes, yesterday and in it, Mark was saying that he no longer felt safe at home um, and that Raheem was no longer a safe haven. He said that Dermot had said that unless he was given the land that he would commit suicide and that he told him that there would be no lights on in Raheem ever again. He, so Mark said himself that he could overcome comments about his weight and his skill set but that he could not overcome threats to himself or his mother. Yeah. So that, that letter was, was written uh, or was read, pardon me, into, into evidence yesterday. Um, you know, I mentioned there Anne O'Sullivan's first cousin, Louise Sherlock. So Louise said that Anne was like her eighth sister uh, in, in her own family. And um, the court was told yesterday that Anne told her cousin that there'd been bad feeling between the four home and that it had begun when her diagnosis of terminal cancer, that was back in February of last year, and there was pressure from her younger son, Dermot, and her husband, Tyke, to make a will, uh, leaving her family farm to the youngest son. Now, one visit to Raheem that Louise Sherlock made in March of last year, she recalled how Tyke passed a comment to Anne saying that someone he knew had sorted their will and at least they had their affairs in order. So he passed that comment. Uh, Ty had also told Louise that, that it would be all over in a couple of weeks and that there would be carnage. Yeah. Now, um, Anne and Mark, as I mentioned before, they'd moved in with Louise following Anne's surgery in Dublin. And on October 13th, Louise took her concerns to Cantart Garda Station and she looked for advice. Uh, she was told of the different orders that they could take out, you know, like a barring order, etc., and Louise was about to go on night shifts and Anna Mark had promised her that they wouldn't leave to go home while she was at work. And she gave them the number for uh, the guard at the station. And she also told how Mark had slept at the foot of his mum's bed in order to protect her for a number of nights. But I think they were anxious to go home. Anne was anxious to get home. So they, they returned home on October 25th. Um, and, and it was the following day, October 26th, when their bodies were, were found by, by Gardaí. Mm. Um now, Mark's friend, uh, Clara Lucy, was also in court and she told of how, you know, he was intelligent, funny and that they had met through work. Now, they'd been exchanging messages and they'd met up a number of times and they were good friends. Um, and she said that Mark was doing the green search. So that's what you do to take over a farm, yeah. you know, in order to get loans and all the rest of it. So on October 10th last year, Mark had told her of his theories that his brother and father would kill him and make it look like suicide. And he asked her to show their messages to Gardaí if his body was ever found. And she, she did stress yesterday that Mark was not suicidal at all. 
Yeah. Um, so I suppose, as I, as I mentioned at the outset, you know, the coroner, Dr. Michael Kennedy, he just said the circumstances, it's a terrible sequence of events and that it was hard to make sense of it all, what went on. He extended his sympathies, you know, to everyone impacted, including the community of, of Asulas in Pantark. And the jury yesterday at the, the inquest, you know, they called for a review of protocols for dealing with calls and statements from third parties to Gardaí um, where, there, where there's a danger. Did they outline what they mean by that, Maureen? Because I did see that and I said, OK, what's, what's the background to that? What's the basis for that? They didn't um, outline exactly. They, that's the, the line they gave that they want a review of the protocols for dealing with calls and statements. They did, um, I suppose, include where there's firearms involved as well. So, But they didn't go into any detail. That was just their recommendation um, and from the, the jury. Mm. I suppose the suggestion might be, and it's just this, that the authorities had been alerted, I suppose, to a, a, an unsafe or potentially unsafe situation and maybe look into those protocols for the future. A, a distressing day in the court, Maureen, to listen to this. It really was. It really was. And I suppose I should mention that the coroner did say at the outset, you know, before Dr. Bolster was to give her evidence that if anyone wanted to leave, yeah. that they were more than welcome to and to come back because it is a tough day. And especially for those people who are close to the family and and listening to what happened you know for we'll say for clara listening to what happened to her friend you know he was unlawfully killed shot dead and do you you know and and it is a tough day to to listen to that and it brings back up all of the i suppose the feelings that she would have had at the you know the shock and and all of that you know so yeah very tough day and and my sympathies go out to, to all impacted as well by this tragedy. As do ours, as to their community and, and their friends, because once again, they, through an inquest, they, they had to, I suppose, relive it all. Uh, Maureen, thank you very much. And the, I, yes. I should add, sorry, before I go, that the coroner also did say that if anyone listening to this or reading this in the media is having trouble, he said, seek mediation. And that is the message from him. Go and seek mediation yeah. if you are having trouble. Yeah. At the time of this tragedy, what we did was we just commented on the facts of what had happened. We didn't look into the background. We said it would come out one day at inquests. And that's exactly what happened yesterday. Thank you so much. I'm already to give the 96FM Newsroom for bringing us a comprehensive outline of what did happen. Uh, during yesterday's inquest in Mallow Court. The inquests into the deaths of Mark and Tyg and Dermot O'Sullivan. 1850 715 996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Cork loves the arts. We do too. That's why we bring you the Arts House. Every Sunday on Cork's 96 FM. Who could have imagined, despite theatres and cinemas being closed, the Arts House would be as busy as ever? Maybe we can't send you for nights out, but each week we bring you the latest news from our vibrant and creative communities all around Cork. Whether it's tips for the best live gigs online, new initiatives from Cork's writers and musicians, or great ideas for sitting at home and exploring galleries in the virtual world, join Elmarie Maw and Connor Tallon as we work to support and keep the arts alive in Cork. The Arts House. Sunday 
mornings, 8 to 10. With Griffin's Potatoes, feeding Cork families with delicious Griffin's New Seasons Queens. Find them on Facebook at Griffin's Potatoes. Cork's 96 FM. Gary is wondering to know, or wanting to know, PJ, all of a sudden, 200 people allowed outdoors. What's all this about? I promise you, Jimmy, we're going to address it. Because we were talking throughout the programme yesterday about... There's a whole story. Many, many developments in it after we got here yet, you know, or off air yesterday. The least of which she decided she wasn't taking the UN job. The, the, the Attorney General threw his tuppence worth in and said, in actual fact, the event at the Marion Hotel was perfectly above board and within the law, and in fact has been legal since the end, start of July. So I'm going to come into that one in a wee while, I promise you. Uh, we'll analyse that as best we can. But let's look at the great news of the morning. It happened just after about six o'clock this morning. I was listening to it uh, on the radio rather than watching it on the television. I was just so thrilled for Kelly Harrington. She will now box for gold on Sunday morning. Uh, she already is a world uh, champion in lightweight. She's from 2018. And she won a silver medalist in the world championship in 2016. But uh, and, and won a gold in the European Boxing Championships earlier this year. That qualified her for the Olympics. But on Sunday morning at 6am, she will box for gold at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. We don't know a whole pile about her. She, she grew up on Portland Row in Dublin's inner city, a great working class, ordinary Dublin place. It's none of your Dwarf accents there. It's real down-to-earth, inner-city dubs, the grandest people you'd ever meet. She does her training at St Mary's Boxing Club in Talla. Um, she left school at 14, did her junior set then with Youth, Youth Reach, which is a great organisation, joined the army when she was 18, but quit the army because it didn't suit her. Then she started boxing and everything turned around. When she's not boxing and training, she works as a cleaner in St Vincent's Hospital in Fairview in Dublin. She's she's 31. She's a great bit of stuff. She, she really is. And this morning, our friend Thomas Cross from FM 104 went to visit her family and friends out in Portland Road. How do you feel? Unbelievable. None. I'd say none. It's probably the best way to describe it. Um, after years and years and years of graft and being happy, being upset, being frustrated, um, being motivated, being unmotivated, everything in between, she's got where she deserves to be and she's got where she should be. Um, so it's, I think that's probably, I think me dad would probably echo that. That's the nicest part of it, is that we've seen all what Kelly's had to do to get where she is and the fight she's had outside of the ring. Um, and uh, that's probably the best part of it, you know. It's, it's just that it makes a sweet. This is Kelly Town now. No, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. Kelly Town. <laughs> like the it community. Jesus. They're brilliant. They are, they are the champions. I'm telling you now, they are the champions. And as, as like Christy Doigna says, crazy wars. Yeah. And as a DAC, can you try and explain to everyone listening this morning, you seeing your daughter, like, Jesus, we were in tears and work watching ourselves. Uh, she knew gave us all heart attacks. It's just we knew she was going to win it, but still, you did the tension and you just the movement and you're, it's it's all right. It, it, it's too much to handle. It's it's we we never dreamed that this would come on us. Don't we? We we knew Kelly would do well at the Olympics and all that. We didn't see this side 
hitting us. So it's, it's, it's. Have you been speaking to Reyes? We spoke to her a couple of days ago. Yeah, we, we get to on the word, just let her set up for yeah, a while. We haven't spoken about this, this morning. Is, this is special, special. That we're leaving her, just. And we, we'd, we'd probably get a five minute window. That's it. That's it. She, she, uh, Kelly's. Like, there'll be no emotion now from Kelly. She's ice, and she goes back, rests, has a quick chat with our coaches as well. How did you think they did? And I thought they'd have a chat about the fight on Sunday. And then, and then she'll rest tonight and rest up, and she's just ice. Um, that's it. She's in recovery mode and on to the next fight. And that's that. It's not about... Yeah, she, she, won't, she actually won't enjoy this. She won't enjoy it, won't she? No, she just, no, well, she's she, straight back into her field now. Yeah. To get her energy back up again. Because they have to weigh in for every fight, so you have to keep your weight proper, proper, proper. So this is the only time you get to eat, to get your energy up, and then you have to make sure you're So it's, it's How are you yeah. guys keeping, can I ask? Like, it must be mad for you, you know? She's got her head in the game, you know, the zone. And then you're dealing with all this, like, it's so Yeah, she good. has those, that's what I'm saying. This is, we, we, we didn't see this coming. We, we seen Kelly doing what course we did. What, what's happened with the media and... We just didn't see this coming. You know? She's our head in the game yeah, and we yeah. were bleeding head all over the middle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deadly. Cheers, guys. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Thank you, right? That's Crossy uh, talking to her dad. Uh, Christy and her brother Joel in Porton Road early this morning after Kelly Harrington qualified for the Olympic final on Sunday morning around six bells we don't have rights for commentary or we don't have rights to to anything like that so we can't play eclipse from the ring or anything like that It's the, the, the rights to this Olympic Games are tighter than any rights we've ever had to deal with before but one thing that did go around during the week was a lovely interview that she did with BBC Northern Ireland just a quick clip of this. This is why she's so loved. This is why people are gunning for Kelly uh, to get gold. Not just her own people in, in Dublin's inner city, but, but the whole country is behind Kelly. It's for little things like this. In Portland Row, they're trying to put it on big screens because you've got the whole community buzzing for you. What does that mean to you? To be able to, to give my community, Dublin, Ireland, something to be excited about and look forward to. That's the real emotional part, you know, like, that means so much, like, to be able to make people smile and let them have something to be happy about, you know. She's a sweetheart, an absolute sweetheart. And with a name like Harrington, and I'm just throwing this out there now for what it's worth. <laughs> with a name like Harrington, and a dad with the name of Christy Harrington. There's got to be some way we can trace her blood or her DNA to West Cork. Does anybody agree with me? There must be some way we can claim her. Anyway, she fights Sunday morning at six bells. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. There was a major piece of research uh, published a couple of years ago, 2019 I think, that found that heading the ball is potentially dangerous for soccer players and that it can cause or contribute to the development of dementia and other such related problems in later life, particularly in professional footballers. That 
research has been there, as I said, for a year or two. Now it seems that your chances of developing problems can be affected by the position you play in. That's the finding of another new piece of research called Field, Football's Influence in Lifelong Health and Dementia Risk. And the lead researcher is Dr. Willie Stewart. He's a consultant neuropathologist at Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow, and he joins me now. Dr. Willie, good morning, and thanks for taking our call. Good morning. Delighted to have you with us on the programme. The research in 2019 was made for very interesting and, I guess, disturbing reading. This develops on it further, doesn't it? Yeah, what we found in 2019 was that the risk of dying with gentle brain disease as a professional footballer was very much higher, three and a half times higher than we'd expect. But what it didn't really do was was give us a clue as to why that might be. It, it may have been just being a professional footballer, you know, something about the, being an athlete like that, put you at risk of developing dementia, not necessarily the game of, of football itself. So. Mm. On this study, what we did was we, we took a, a theory that, that uh, head injuries and head impacts were important, heading might be important. And of course, when you look at a football field, a soccer field, then it, depending on which position you're playing, uh, the risk of heading and head, in, head injuries varies depending on your field position. So we thought, let's look at field position and see if the risk varies. And sure enough, it does. If you play in goal, your risk of developing dementia is not much different to what you know it would be if you hadn't played football. But if you play outfield your risk was four times higher than it should be. And in particular, defender, defenders, the risk five yeah. times higher than it should be. That's five times higher than we'd expect. Because statistically, they head the ball far more. They do, yeah. And, and that's been shown in several studies. And even the, the Football Association did some work, which was uh, talked about last week. And that showed, again, that defenders, not only are heading the ball more often, but the force of header that defenders is, yeah. are exposed to is higher than the rest of the field. Do you know the way that the old adage in science, Dr. Stewart, is that correlation doesn't imply causation and you have to look further into it? So, so do, does the study look at that? So, importantly, this, this study, you know, this is just one of a, a piece of a jigsaw which has been building for some time yeah. now. So, so we've known for nearly a century that, that boxers have a risk of, of dementia and a particular problem when we look at their brains, a pathology in their brains, which is distinctive and unique. And we used to think it was unique to boxers. But we've been seeing that pathology now in other places. We've seen it in rugby players, footballers, American mm. footballers, and it's, it's this thing called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Now, that research and pathology, together with what we're now seeing, which is this, you know, looking at population risk of dementia, together with an, an awful lot of, of, of laboratory work we've done um, over the years, really, you know, it's the totality of research that builds up and says head injury, head impact yeah. is the standout only risk factor we've seen so far. Nothing else has come forward. Yeah. We've seen nothing else to explain this. And that's and that's and that's the link. So one would think, uh, doctor, that well, back in the fifties and the sixties and the seventies, a football was a big, heavy leather thing, and hitting that with your head, particularly on a wet day, was a much heavier object than the light balls that they use nowadays, which they seem to weigh less than an ounce or two. Well, that's, a, that's an important observation, and it comes up a lot. But the reality is that the, the weight of a football, you know, a soccer ball, off the shelf, as stipulated by the international authorities, hasn't changed for over 150 years. It's 14 really? to 16 ounces, yeah. yeah. Now, the, 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 the materials have changed, and, and, and what you'd recognise, and you, you sort of hinted there, is that the old leather balls used to scuff up and absorb a bit of water and became more rigid and, and became you know, felt a bit heavier. And they were a wee bit heavier, but not massively heavier. But it turns out the physics of all of this, 
which is a complex area that I'm not really qualified for, but, but there's some experts in biomechanics have looked sure. into it. And what they say is that actually the stiffness of the ball, that, you know, when it gets wet, it becomes stiff. The weight of the ball, yes, influence the, the forces that a player may experience, but sure. not by much. So, much more important is the speed the ball is moving at. So a small change in speed produces a big difference in, in forces course, for the for Philosophy the and force and, and impact. Ball is moving faster, yeah. yeah. Basic physics, I guess. So, so, Doctor, explain what goes on inside the head. That's your area of expertise. What goes on inside the head when, when it strikes the ball? Yeah, well, you say that's my area of expertise. And that, that allows me to say we just don't know. Um, we, we don't know for sure what's happening. We can do um, tests on brain function. So I, I could test your memory now and then take you in and have you head the ball 20 times and test your memory again. And it won't be as good as it, as it was. Uh, before you headed the ball. We can take some blood samples from you and find that there's brain proteins floating about in your blood after you've headed the ball that shouldn't be there. And we can do brain scans over a season of heading and show that the structure of our brain is changing. But actually what's happening deep down in the brain, we're not absolutely certain, but we know or we feel that what's happening is, is that the exposure to whatever damage is, is there, you know, the sort of microscopic, really subtle damage, becomes eventually irreversible and, and begins to grow and smoulder away and become this right. dementia pathology years later. Okay. Bring it back down to brass tacks, Dr. Stewart. We have thousands of youngsters uh, here in the city of Cork playing football a couple of times a week, playing on a Saturday morning. Some of them are really, really good, would like to go on and play for their local club, play for League of Ireland, maybe play there in the, in the Scottish Premier Division with uh, uh, Celtic Rangers one day or playing Manchester United in Liverpool. The ambition is there, the love of the game is there. Is it time, though, do you think, based on the research in front of you now, is it time to change the game, taking this think, research I, into account? I think, I, think, I think it has to be considered. I think, I think football authorities need to decide uh, whether heading is essential uh, to the game of football, whether whether the game of football can exist without heading, um, and I would suggest if if that were true, we'd we'd, we'd call it headball, not football, but it's called football. And, and the other way to ask that question is is do the football authorities believe it's essential to be exposed to a risk of dementia for the game to go ahead? Um, so if, if if heading remains, are they then saying? If you're going to be a footballer, you just have to accept that you've got a five times higher risk of developing dementia later in life. And I, I don't think, you know, as parents or as players, I don't think that's something that we'd necessarily want to accept, you know. Yeah. Particularly when we could, we, could, we could eliminate the risk. We could get rid of this risk by just saying, look, let's try football without heading. Because you can't really start playing the under-7s or the under-9s or the teenagers without a header until the game itself changes. So you, ch- children have got kids learning the game these days have got to learn the skills of using the head as long as it well, remains as part of the game. You say that a bit, do you know, in, in, after our research a couple of years ago showing that the risk of death of dementia was higher, the Scottish and English football associations just, just said, right, here and now we're going to take heading away from the, the youth game. So under 12s don't head the ball at all. Yeah. Uh, and the, the adolescents do it very infrequently. And I, I think, you know, there's no doubt that the, the, the local associations are very keen to try and do something. But you're right. The problem is that, that, let's say, you know, Scottish Football Association says no more heading. Rangers and Celtic, you know, have to follow that rule and say there's no more heading. They go into Europe or our players, you know, get into the, the national team and they're up against teams that have, that have heading and suddenly it becomes this competitive disadvantage. It needs the global game of football mm. to make that decision. Could that it's, ever it's happen, do you think? 
I, it, it, it'll have to happen because, you know, I think if if they don't you know, address this now, the, the, the time between exposure and developing dementia is 30 to 40 years. If we don't address this now in 2021, fast forward 30 years, there's going to be a whole queue of footballers uh, looking at the courts and saying, you knew the risk that you were putting exposing me to, you did nothing about it, and now I've got problems and I want to... I want compensation for that. So it's going to cost sport dearly if they don't react now. Dr. Stewart, it's been a pleasure to speak with you and thank you for taking our call. That's Dr. Willie Stewart. He's a consultant neuropathologist at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow and the lead of this new research from Field Football Influence on Lifelong Health Dementia Risk, which basically has proved conclusively that not only is heading the ball a possible cause of dementia in later life but depending on the position you play like defenders and he's saying we've got to change the rules, you've got to change the game because if you don't in 30-40 years when let's just pick a name out of our heads, let's pick a name that we all know, okay Uh, pick any player that you like Harry Kane, right let's just pick Harry Kane And in 30, 40 years, and I hope to goodness it doesn't happen to him, but in 30, 40 years, Harry Kane is struggling with dementia. He will be, as the professor says there, entitled to look back at the research and say, hang on, lads, you knew. You knew. After all the controversy, not only about the appointment, but about the party at the Merrion Hotel, Catherine Zapole announced that she wouldn't be taking up this gig, this UN gig, as... Quote, special envoy for freedom of expression and opinion, which I still can't quite get my head around what that means anyway. But then came a very strange intervention from the Attorney General, Paul Gallagher. He issued the government with legal advice that said that the event at the Marion Hotel was in fact quite legal. And in actual fact that hotels, pubs and restaurants can host private parties for up to 200 people. Now, there's a statutory instrument, and we've explained before what they are. They're just a little piece of law, a tiny little piece of law that the Minister of the Day can insert into legislation, and it changes the legislation without the need for it to go through the the, the, the houses of the Oireachtas. It, 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 it's a change to existing legislation, not a fundamental change in the new legislation. And there's a statutory instrument that's been in place, which I think the 4th of July. And this is the one that the Attorney General seems to have jumped upon Yesterday, it says that a person may organise or cause to be organised an ev- a relevant event in a relevant geographical location, do I know that baloney, where the event takes place entirely outdoors and the number of persons attending or proposed to attend does not exceed 500 where the event is to be held or to be held other than in a relevant... And not of all nonsense, but basically the statutory instrument stated that what happened at the Marion was okay. And the Attorney General issued that advice yesterday afternoon, which has itself caused a political turmoil. A political correspondent of the Irish Sun, Adam Higgins. Adam, good morning. Good morning, PJ. And, and you're right to point out the, about the AG's advice there. And can I just add, it is extremely rare for journalists to get a press release from yeah. the government press, sec- uh, government press office with 
the regulations of advice from the Attorney General. This does not happen often, and it goes to show you how seriously the government are taking this and how concerned they were that rules may have been broken. And there are pains now to point out that, no, 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 none of our members broke the rules this time. This is a, a statutory instrument, and I think it dates back to the 4th or 5th of July. Mm, that's right. Yeah, I'm actually looking at it here in front of me. And this whole thing here with uh, Catherine Zabone has been a really messy affair from start to finish. And to be honest, it's it's not over yet because there's so many questions left to answer. I mean, how did pubs and restaurants not know that they could book events like this? I mean, surely this would have helped a lot of people. And then why was the Attorney General asked to retrospectively advise on this event that had already taken place and why has Catherine Sabone refused to speak to any media or journalist about this issue mm. since she was appointed and now disappointed as UN Special Envoy of Freedom of Expression of all things Well, the first part that Adam, one would suggest and yes, the restaurant and pub owners are hopping up and down as they're wont to do now why didn't we know this? Well, a statutory instrument is not a secret document they're all published. You could have found no, it if you wanted it well, you could have, but the, th- the thing is that restaurants and pubs will go by the advice that's given by Falcha Ireland yes. and guidelines. And Falcha Ireland, the Falcha Ireland guidelines did state that someone can't ring and book several tables of six. That's, that's a, that was a, a rule in the guidelines. And clearly, that, that guideline goes against the advice that the Attorney General issued last night. So there is complete confusion over what restaurants can and can't do when it comes to gatherings mm. larger than six and up to 50 and up to 200 now, apparently. Mm. Did the AG, and I'm not clear on this, Adam, did the AG intervene himself or was he asked to? I would imagine he he was asked to because I'd say what happened here last night was, or yesterday in the morning, this it came out in the Irish Independent and I'd say there was a lot of scrambling over who did what and when. And for what I'm told, there was a real anger within Fianna Fáil that this points to this cronyism claim that the opposition parties were lobbying at the at the Catherine's Zappone appointment. This really kind of makes it a little bit more stronger, their argument. And Fianna Fáil TDs and senators were furious about this. So there was a push from Fianna Fáil to explain, well, how can this happen? What's the story here? And I think this is where... Hang on a second, now, they're, they're running the health department. Uh, Stephen Donnelly's name is on this statutory instrument. But, but the, restaurant and, the restaurants and pubs are running their, their premises based on the Fáilte Ireland guidelines gotcha. that are given to their representative associations. So if the Fáilte Ireland guidelines, it's the government departments, it's, it's departments like Catherine Martin's department and Lee of Racker's department that sit down to draw up these Fáilte Ireland guidelines. And yet they didn't know that they could hold these events. They didn't know that this law was in place that they could have up to 200 people potentially in their, in their premises. Now, you and I know as political hacks, Adam, that August loves stories like this. It's got more. It's it's got further to travel. Where is it going next? Well, the next step in this um, messy, messy affair will be that Falcha Ireland will meet with government representatives today to have a look at their guidelines and and redraw them in a way that takes this advice on board. So what you're probably likely to see either this evening or tomorrow morning is renewed guidelines for the restaurants and pubs. And God knows they've seen renewed guidelines enough during all this COVID nineteen messing. And what they will see now is probably an expansion to of some sort of guideline that will outline how they can hold an event of 50 to two, up to 200 people according to the, the statutory implement that you just read out. Isn't effort likely to uh, have something to say about this? 
I think that will be a very interesting press conference. We know that usually we get an effort press conference either today or it could be tomorrow, and it'd be very interesting to see what the chief medical officer, Tony Hoolan, has to say about this. We know he is a, a very clever operator, and he has been um, careful with his words in the past when yeah. it comes to criticising uh, government leaders, but, I mean... I can't see how he couldn't have an opinion on this and be very interested. No doubt the question will be put to him by our colleagues and no doubt he will have something to say about this. Yeah, I mean, would he have been informed of this statutory instrument or would he have been asked for advice on it before it was written is a good question as well. It is indeed and no doubt that questions like this will be asked of the, the public health representatives later on today. Adam, is there any chance of political careers being damaged here? I think a lot of damage has been done, um, in particular on the Fine Gael side here. When you look at the Tarnish, the going to this event, having been in charge of the department that drew up the guidelines, and then there was a very interesting part in his um, initial statement to the Irish Independent that said he had asked minister, uh, former ministers of Pone, and he had asked the hotel that the event was definitely within the, the guidelines and within the, the government's rules. And the fact that I think the Tarnister who was in charge of drawing up these rules has to ask that the hotel, ask the hotel for advice on whether the, the rules uh, are being followed. I think there's a lot of questions left to answer here, but it's honest there. And I think, I do think at some point over the next few days, you will see him out in a big media interview explaining and trying to defend himself here. And, and as we I know, think, when you're explaining, you're losing. Exactly. Adam, we'll talk again, I've no doubt. Thanks very much, Adam Higgins, uh, political correspondent of the Irish Sun. It is a mess, and it's the kind of mess that August loves, because August is usually a political vacuum, total silly season. <laughs> Not this time. 1850-715-996. Quickly before the news at 10, I want to get a couple of minutes with Irina. Irina, good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Susie. Talk to me about your boy, uh, Nikita. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much for the call as well. So, um, Nikita was um, actually had the flu two years ago, 2019, August, and it's actually... Um, uh, nose was running, and I see that it didn't go go away. The liquid in the nose, and uh, it was started to bother him. So we went to the GP. GP said that uh, it's probably because of flu. So take the antibiotics. We took it. It didn't help. Then he come back again, as he said. Then he said it's probably sinusy. Um, gave another antibiotic for sinusit. It didn't go away. Then. He said it's probably allergy, so gave us treatment for the allergy. We took it, and he said we need to give it a few months, like two months. Mm -hmm. Come back to me. I come back again that nothing changed at all and even became worse. So he said that uh, then we need to refer you to the specialist. And he referred us in February 2018, and uh, he... And then we got appointment only in July, at the end of July, to see the consultant. And uh, consultant saw and he said uh, that we need to do MRI scan and CT scan to see what is there. And when we done this scan, um, he came very, very upset and said to us that, unfortunately, guys, you have a tumor. Mm. And I it's actually, tumor behind, it's kind of behind his face, isn't it? So it's affecting his nose and his eyes 
and and all it's 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 growing, isn't it? It is. Yes, uh, he actually. I even didn't know what this tumor in English, but uh, then my son explained, and I was okay. I didn't know anything. What is this? So it is behind the nose. It's actually in the nose, but it can grow and grow to your eyes, affecting ears, and the most scary the um, brain as well, because uh, it is. Um, they still don't know why it's happening. Um, scientists. And the doctor was as well very upset because it is, he said, very rare and very uh, risky surgery because uh, surgeons have, um, they cannot stop blood from when you do the surgery, they cannot stop uh, blood loss. Yeah, but it is risky surgery. The the tumor is called juvenile angiofibroma. Mm -hmm. And the operation can be done here, but and and but you haven't got a date yet. And I want, would you maybe come back to me, Irina, after the news? And I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. I will. Oh, hold on, I'll put you back on to, to Fergal for mm-hmm. just a sec. And, and you come back to me after the news. I'm talking to Irina, who lives in Cork. She's uh, here since 2004. Her son is 17. He has a tumour effectively behind his face, behind his nose, affecting his nose, affecting his eyes, affecting his ears. He needs surgery, but as Irina will tell us after the news, he can't get it. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, the rest of tears and the publicans up in arms over this development yesterday involving the Attorney General and the revelation, such as it is, that having bigger parties in their beer gardens or bigger events, whatever. It's been legal since the 4th of July, but none of this went into the guidelines for the restaurants or the pubs, and they're up in arms about it, and they would be, wouldn't they? Got some comments from you to come, but I want to go back to Irina, who I was talking about, or talking to before the news, and she was telling me about her son, Nikita, who has a very rare type of brain tumour. It's called a juvenile angiofibroma, and he's had it uh, for the last year or two now. And I think, Irina, he was scheduled to have surgery last January, but then that was cancelled. Hello again. Yes. Uh, it is not brain tumor. It is in the nose. Thank okay. God it is not brain tumor. Okay. This is what I worry that it will go to the brain. And if it will go to the brain, uh, the surgery uh, cannot help. You need to have this gotcha. chemical therapy. So it's not a brain tumor at the moment, but the danger is it will become one. Yes. I got gotcha. you. Yes. So he was scheduled to have an operation in January. Yes, he was scheduled in January and since eight months, they never contacted us, and I was calling them, and GP was calling them, and they just said, uh, you know, they didn't reply GP for four weeks, even when we started to come and saw that before the tumor wasn't visible, but now it is visible on his nose. Yeah. You know, why was it cancelled? Why was the date in January cancelled? Uh-huh. Uh, so 
they said, professor said that um, the surgery will be 14 of January, so please prepare for it and we were happy, yes. And then uh, from the news we found out that um, all surgeries cancelled and they never said it anything about it so since that time they even didn't say that uh, they couldn't uh, that they will not do surgery for us but we understood from the news you know only and from march when i read from the news that they come back to do surgeries to people i started to contact them yeah, and when they came back you said that they came back to your gp mm-hmm. after a few weeks what did they say uh-huh. Well, they said that they are aware of Nikita and he will have a surgery in three, four weeks. The team will contact them. Right. And that was when, Irina? It was, um, I think, at the, end, at the end of March or maybe in April, in the, at the beginning of April. And you still heard nothing else? No, nothing else. Nothing. Nobody contacted me and they keep saying... Uh, it's very hard uh, to call them, very hard, because you see what they do. This is like a game. Uh, I call, we went for the appointment twice. Uh, it was Iron Ear Hospital Victoria, and another um, doctor said that we're going to have the surgery in St. James Hospital because uh, he will be staying there. And uh, what is happening when... I called to the INR hospital, to the secretary, to the nurse of the doctor. They say that, sorry, we cannot help you because you won't have surgery here. You need to contact St. James Hospital. I'm contacting St. James Hospital. I have 10 numbers, you know, to contact. The main one is secretary of the professor. You you can't seem to get an answer from any of them as to where where you're going. Meanwhile, how is Nikita? Very bad. Very bad because, you see, you can see now tumor on his nose. Oh. And, you know, he's sleeping seated. I am... I don't know. He cannot lie down because the tumor gives very big pressure. Oh, he can't breathe, poor devil. And he cannot breathe by nose long time ago. Oh, my God. And, you know, he cannot sleep by lie down. Because the pressure of the tuber, you can see the tuber now. Oh, you can see it. Outside. <laughs> Is he in pain? Yes, because he's saying it, it gives him very big pain on, <clears throat> like, what he's describing. Uh, pain like a stone, and it wants to blow up, yeah. and he cannot lie down and sleep. Because he say it's such a big pressure that it will blow up, mom, and I'm so scared. It's waking him up, and his eyes constantly red now, and um, it's pains, you know, those irritations, mm-hmm. and the ears constantly blocked and ringing. And, and when you so, say you can see it, where can you see it, and what can you see? In the nose. You see, before it wasn't that visible, this uh, tumor that he has it inside. But now his nose is swollen. You can see it even. Oh, no. Mm. Mm-hmm. So he can't breathe through his nose, he can't sleep properly. Uh. Oh, he lost so much weight. I cannot look at my son now because, you know, he's like slowly dying every day. 
and I can't help, I, I call, you know what they say, they say to me uh, that um, I call to the St. James and they say, uh, the nurse, the nurse and the secretaries of the prof- doctor, so they said, sorry, we can help you, you need to contact again, I near hospital, because uh, mm. we don't have Nikita on the system. Have, have you any help politically with this? Any? Uh, I did. I did contact uh, the councillor of Cork City Council, and he as well uh, contacted them. So I gave time, three weeks, and they said, um, did they reply to you? And he said, no, uh, they as well didn't reply to him. And he sent again uh, Dan Boyle, his name is Dan Boyle, yeah. and he sent again a reminder to them. And they still didn't reply to him. And I'm not surprised because they even didn't reply to GP for four weeks. Yeah, yeah. And you look, apart from the frustration of it, you're now desperately worried about your boy. And you, 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 now you could get this operation where, Irina? You, you could go to okay. Germany for this, could you? Yes. So, you know what I did? Because I understood they play in kind of game, they really don't want to do this surgery. Because again, in June, they promised surgery will happen at the end of July, and the uh, and you still and you still haven't you still haven't had a date, and you know whatever reasons they have for that. Yeah, they're not they're not here to explain why, but it it, it, yeah. it it's desperate it's desperately upsetting and worrying for you. You you have found a place in Germany where it could mm-hmm. be done. Tell me about that. Okay, I will tell you very fast. So how it is now? I contacted the medical agency. It is Booking.com. You know, you can see on the internet, uh, they actually registered with the all hospitals uh, in general. It is, um, and they uh, ask me to send the scans because they have consultants and they will find the hospitals for me uh, who can make the surgery and the doctor. So I send them all our information. But the thing is, I don't have, I have um, report of the scans, but I don't have photographs of this, uh, of the, those scans. And they said, uh, send what you have now. I sent, and they said, because those scans now 12 months old, and it should be actually done urgently, straight away during the three, three months time. And, and those it, scans are 12 months old, so they, yes. they, they don't know, they, they haven't seen how he is now. Mm-hmm. How much would it cost to go to Germany to get this done? Okay, so they said to me that it, it is, will be 30,000 uh, surgery, 8,000 therapy, hormonal therapy, because they think it's, it can come back actually. You see, yes. it can come back, but if you do this hormonal therapy, uh, it it won't come back. It's okay. like fifty-fifty, you know. Yeah. And so they uh, need to treat the tumor as mm-hmm. is now, and then treat his system so that it doesn't ha- yes. com- com- yes. come back. Yes. Okay. It is important. Okay. Okay. And you've set up because you're now sick and tired of waiting for for a date here. You've set up a GoFundMe, which we've shared, by the way, on our social mm-hmm. media arena, to try to yeah. get the money together to get him the surgery in mm-hmm. in Germany. How how is he? Uh, he must be desperately scared now, is he? Oh, even Donovsky actually really lose lose this face, you know, in doctor lose face that nobody can help him. Yeah. You know. This yeah. is the, uh, and you know, every day it's a cry, 
you know, that nobody, and I'm trying to bring this hope, listen, you will help you, and he, how, how, you know, it's not possible, it looks like it's not possible. He's very, very depressed, very upset, yeah. and struggling in pain because of the eyes, of the ears, of the nose, and, you know, he's saying, uh, very often, you know, mom, you may need to call ambulance, because I don't know, it, I feel like something will happen now with my nose, you know, when it will, like, blow up. Oh, no. Such a big pressure, he's like saying like a stone there. So I don't know, maybe the tumor going to the bone, you know. Like can he take anything for the pain? Oh. No? Well, I said no, you know, because the paracetamol, it will not help. And Tom as well, you know, I left the voicemail, uh, not one, but so many, that maybe you at least gave us medicine uh, that it stopped growth of this tumor yeah. we can see it now outside oh, you God. know oh, and you, must he, be, you must be you must be so so worried and so so frustrated that you had a date the date was cancelled because of covid that happened and then operations started again but he still had no date and this thing is getting worse irina we have shared the mm-hmm. GoFundMe for you. I wish you well. I wish Nikita well, and I mm-hmm. hope against hope that something will happen. Because look, something c- could happen that there will be an operation arranged for him. If there was a commitment to one in January, he- he's got to get it. He really's got to get it. Thank you for speaking with us, and good luck to everybody. Did you? Thank you very much as well, and all people. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. That's a terrible, terrible situation to be in, Irina. Antonia, her son Nikita was promised surgery for this tumour, promised it and had a date in January and was getting ready. And sure, when surgeries were cancelled across the hospitals because of the COVID surge, it got cancelled. But still hasn't got a new date. It's getting worse. They can see the damn thing now outside up his nose. It's, it's so distressing. We've shared the GoFundMe if you want to contribute, but I think what needs to happen here, and if anyone's listening of our senior political representatives, uh, would anyone take this on board and drive it a bit harder? Dan Boyle, with, with all due respect, Dan Boyle is a local councillor, highly experienced man, sen- has been a senator and all those things, but this needs to this this needs someone banging a table for this lad at a much higher level. 1857-15996. We got some good news yesterday after we were talking to Nisi uh, about her experience with Booking.com. To basically recap, Nisi booked a place in Kerry uh, through Booking.com and she paid them 200 quid. When she got there, she couldn't find the place. She got back onto Booking.com and they did give her back her money. This was her experience up to yesterday. They did give her back the money. They tell us our primary aim at Booking.com is to en- enable smooth and enjoyable travel experiences for all of our customers. Unfortunately, in this instance, the owner of the property was away on holiday during the dates the guest had booked to stay, and a relocation was not arranged. We have apologised to the customer and have processed a full refund in addition to covering the relocation costs and providing a gesture of goodwill for any inconvenience caused. So at least she might get her relocation costs. She went to she went to Dingle instead for the night and it cost them more money. But look, she got her money back from Booking.com. They've sorted it out. There was a perfectly logical explanation, thanks be to goodness. So that is where it is. Can we just talk? 
The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. On the subject of uh, Catherine Zappone and Eventgate or Gate, as they were calling it and the now revelation from the Attorney General that... <laughs> Well, actually, it was legal all along, and the intervention of the Attorney General yesterday, that that event was actually legal all along, and now the restaurateurs and the publicans are hopping up and down going, hang on a second, why didn't we know that? Because the guidelines under which we were operating took no account of this change in the law, which happened on the 4th of July. So all of this confusion is out there. Uh, on WhatsApp, what's the big deal? I was at a wedding outdoors with 150 people in a pub just six weeks ago. Well, six weeks ago, it wasn't. <laughs> Listener, six weeks ago, that, that uh, statutory instrument didn't exist. Bernie says there's no point in the government drawing up new guidelines anymore. Who's going to listen if they won't do it themselves? And the Baldy Barber, I'm delighted that the opposition made a fool of themselves again. They love objecting to anything. This lady would have been the right person for the job, referring to Catherine Zappone and the United Nations gig that she has now turned down. But it's not over. This one is far from over. And of course, events and anything to do with events uh, pricks up the ears of the music and entertainment industry. The Music and Entertainment Association of Ireland, their spokesperson is Matt McGranahan. Matt, before I talk about where the industry stands right now, the political developments and the legal developments of the last 24 hours, you must be thinking about them yourselves. Good morning. Yeah, PJ, thank you very much. And uh, I'm good to start on that point because I think although Electric Picnic is a major news story, you know, the, yeah. the political developments are, are I think, uh, much bigger. Uh, I just have the statutory instrument in front of me, uh, 217, and it says requirements in relation to hotels, which would cover the time for the 21st of July, is that the guests or members of the public are not permitted access to a hotel unless they are there as a resident or there to order food or drink for consumption off the premises. So I don't understand how uh, people could attend an event uh, at that at that time. We've, we've always been led to believe that there are guidelines for events and there are guidelines for, for different businesses, such as pubs and hotels. Mm. And really in there, the twain shall meet. Or if you want to run an event, if you want to run a music event, you run it under the event guidelines. If you want to operate the, a pub or a restaurant, you, you, you operate it under those particular guidelines. And uh, what we're seeing here now is a complete and utter blurring uh, or else are we seeing... Uh, well, what finally, we have, Matt, is a set, a set, as Adam Higgins from The Sun was pointing out before 10, we have a set of guidelines drawn up and published by, by Fulcher Ireland to cover hotels and pubs that didn't take account of this statutory instrument. And if not, why not, is the question being asked. Well, I think I think that they, they, they did to some extent. Uh, and I think it's, it's you know, that <laughs> government allowed those guidelines to be published by Fulcher Ireland if they were incorrect, which is completely, completely erroneous. I mean, does this mean that, you know, for wedding receptions or that, that you can run it as an event instead of a wedding reception? Yeah. I mean, it allows all kinds of legal loopholes. We we have it at the moment where we can't have a musician in, in, in a beer garden. Yes. For example. And like, we, we had a meeting with Catherine, Minister Catherine Martin last week. And I'm just caught, I'm just seeing an update here from Electric Picnic, where they are calling on members of the government to interrupt their summer recess, immediately issue reopening guidelines, a phased reopening date from the 14th of August on a phased basis, building up to allowing for 
uh, or no restrictions from September. We actually suggested to Minister Catherine Martin last Friday in a brief meeting that we had that, that we, we basically demanded that from this Friday uh, that all music would be allowed with certain restrictions, you know, for a phase reopening and uh, outdoor beer, uh, beer gardens mm. and, and that we would follow that up the week after and the week after with the easing of more restrictions. Yeah. And and no, that was, you know, basically told, well, you know, we need to get the support of other other ministers uh, and, and, and other members of the cabinet and you know, could we could we write to them and and so really what I'm doing is I'm uh, urging and calling and I'm actually pleading with the T shirt um to intervene here and take control of this situation. what is it uh, that you want, Matt? I, we want some. Uh, we, we we need some clarity, and we need some uh, a plan. Not not this kind of. We're going to look at it. Not that it's going to be under review. Not that we'll take a look at it in the future at some time. Why not now? This should have been happening. Electric picnic could have happened had the department been walking towards that. You know, we could have we could have been opening up on a phased basis over the, the period of the last yeah, few months. Yeah, let's fo- focus it on the electric picnic thing because I know the organisers were saying and. I was still off at the time, so I hope I remember it correctly. They were saying that they were going to open it and run it, and anyone coming in would have to show either proof of vaccination or proof of a negative test, mm-hmm. uh, ideally proof of vaccination, and they were going to run it that way. But of course, like every other event of its kind, it's subject to license, and the license from the relevant local council has been denied, and, and that's where it now stands. So the mm-hmm. government didn't cancel Electric Picnic, the local council did. Yeah, but they do everything in their power to help it. Uh, I mean, two weeks ago, the organisers of the event wrote to the the department again to Minister Catherine Martin uh, and put forward their proposals to you know for, of support to to get it over the line. Uh, they also offered that it could be run as another uh, test event. Mm. That, that 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 has been ignored. I mean, was like we can have forty thousand people in Crow Park for all Ireland final, and that's you know. Full credit to the Minister of State for Sport, Jack Chambers, for negotiating that. I know a lot of people are critical of it, but I'm saying I don't want to be critical of anybody moving forward for their own industry. Fair play to them. And fair play to the Minister for being able to achieve that. We can get 40,000 into Crow Park. We can't have one in a beer garden. Yeah. I mean, was there, possi- was there any possibility or could negotiations have happened for electric picnic to happen at, at 50% capacity? At, at 60% capacity? Could the Department have stepped in, helped to run it as a pilot event? You know, this could have helped further the cause of the industry. But do no, you happen to know what out. grounds the council gave for refusing the license? From all I can see, it's based on the public health advice and the way that the the current restrictions only allow uh, 500 or, or limitations to uh, capacity outdoors. Mm. So they're based on current restrictions, not you know. And I suppose the council can only do that. Yes. But but I'm sure if Electric Picnic um, had the support of the department that, you know, wouldn't have been as much of a problem. Uh, and, you know, look, let's be honest, at the same time, uh, we're representing thousands of workers who work day in, day out in, in pubs and restaurants and hotels. And, you know, a lot of them you know, will, will never set foot at Electric Picnic. They will never be on a stage at Electric Picnic. And Electric Picnic isn't that big an issue for them. I understand that. But Electric Picnic is a major event and it would have been a, a great indicator of how seriously the government has taken this industry because we have been just cast aside and ignored and neglected week after week. Mm. Uh, we've fought 
for over a year to get supports. The supports haven't even been issued yet. Uh, and that's the problem. But we say that the department and the government can take a small but significant step into reopening the industry to allow music back, especially in outdoor beer gardens and things like that, uh, back into licensed premises in a safe and responsible manner. And that can be done that can be done right now as far as I'm concerned because mm. you know people aren't allowed into pubs without the COVID vaccine, uh, without the, the, the passport. Yeah. So the, the risks have been completely mitigated right across the board. And now we see that you know the, the interpretation of the legislation can be construed uh, in whichever way mm. is, is necessary to protect politicians. Yeah. But it's, it's, it, for over 510 days now, it has been there to yeah. keep us from working. I would say that a heck of a lot of the, the members of your association are... As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Also vaccinated at this point. I, I would imagine we haven't done that. Um, we haven't done found out that information, but I know we conducted a survey back in, uh, in January and asked them would they be willing and over 90% said yes yeah. that they would be willing to be vaccinated so that's that's fairly reflective of society as a whole you know that we're expecting sort of 90% and 10% won't um, mm. but but even at that we, we need the, the time for planning the time for thinking and that is, is gone we need action right now we have been saying this since March we have been looking for guidelines to be created the, the, the department have created an advisory group uh, and announced it in April. No specific body on it was there to represent musicians. Uh, and it's looking primarily at larger scale events. And, and we still haven't heard anything from that. Um, there's been no further feedback on the pilot events that were held back in June and July. And, and it's just, you know, we're, we're just moving forward at a glacial mm-hmm. pace. Yeah, uh, and, and you're, you're talking here, I think, Matt, on behalf of. And look, we mentioned the electric picnics, and you have things like the the Marquee and Irish Independent Park, and many more festivals like that, up and down the country, which are off, and major concerts in stadiums are off until 2022. But you're talking more about the 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 guy or the two piece or the three piece that most in the corner of the beer garden, banging out the few tunes. 
I, you want, I you're, you're, you're advocating for that person now. I, I'm advocating for everything. I, I, electric picnic is, is getting a lot of the attention at the moment, and I want to. I'm thankful of the opportunity to use that as well to remind people that there's a, there's a, a much larger industry out there, and we all all feed into that big industry. You know, it's uh, you have electric picnic at one end of it, um, and you have everything then in between. You have your concerts and festivals. Uh, you know, major festivals, weekend events. You have concerts in the three arena. You have local theatre. You have arts venues. You have pubs. You have restaurants, weddings, social occasions, funerals, wedding music at at, at chapels. You have all that, where people are making a living day in day out in this industry. You know, and 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 and, and we cannot forget that. Okay. And, right. and while electric picnic certainly is, a, it, it's a massive indicator. It's a massive event, but you know, if you want to get thousands of people back working on a weekly basis, yeah, then you start to ease the restrictions that are in place, which, by the looks of it, can be eased or reinterpreted for one sector of society who attend an event in a hotel, but cannot be reinterpreted yeah. for a sector who hasn't worked in over five hundred and ten days. Yeah, you're also worried finally that while your members are not working, and like you say, many of them haven't worked for 510 days, come September, their supports could be cut. Not only the supports could be cut, that's that's one thing. The double blow here is that the government are going to reclassify those self-employed musicians and crew members as being unemployed. You will be moved to job seekers. Now, currently, uh, we don't have legislation in this country to determine whether a person is an employee or a self-employed individual. So how can the government determine a self-employed person as being unemployed, especially when they are not allowed to to do their work because of government restrictions? Okay. All right. Leave it there for now. We'll talk again, I have no doubt. Matt McGranahan, he's from the Music and Entertainment Association of Ireland. Electric Picnic is the big headline story. But there's thousands of musicians up and down the country. I know one friend of mine in particular, one real boost to him of being vaccinated is that he can now, he's been invited to play at a festival or two in August, late this month, I think, or maybe early next month in France. He can go and play there and play a couple of gigs there, but he can't work here. Uh, We will have an interview uh, just before the end of the show with Brezzy and with Danny from the Coronas on this very, very subject. Also, John was on WhatsApp earlier on saying, what's the point of people getting vaccinated now when the likes of Electric Picnic aren't going ahead? It does raise an interesting question. Like, there are people, and you, you know, for, for whatever reasons best known to themselves, there are people who would have seen Electric Picnic coming up as a reason for themselves to be vaccinated. They would say, great, there's electric picnic, now I'm going to get vaccinated for that. And now it's not going to happen. Will they say, oh, couldn't be bothered me arse getting vaccinated now? Well, not everybody will, I imagine, but some of them might. Some of them might. Uh, could it affect the update? I saw in the north, was it last week or the week before, or the last few days, where they had... Uh, vaccines being given out to young people in particular and they had a music festival coming up and they gave them free tickets to the music festival for coming up to get vaccinated within a particular uh, number of hours 1850 715 996 here's one that's come in about 
Kelly Harrington. And I'm just putting it out there for what the commenter thinks it's worth. I'd like your thoughts upon it. Kelly will be fighting for gold on Sunday morning at six o'clock our time, which is about, I think, two or three o'clock in the afternoon, Tokyo time, against a Brazilian fighter called Ferreira, or Ferreira. And the whole of Ireland will be, I think, getting up at six o'clock to watch her. I know I certainly will. But Ed says, I can never understand how people can find women hitting each other uh, for any reason as being acceptable. There are lots of sports that women can excel at, but boxing, as far as I'm concerned, no. I wonder what listeners think. The fact is, Ed, whether you like it or not, it happens. And for years, there was no way that girls who wanted to box had a platform on which to box. Now they do. And now we Irish are among the best in the world at it. We've got Katie Taylor, beaten all rounder in the professional ranks, won gold in London in 2012. And now we've got uh, Kelly Harrington fighting for gold in Tokyo Sunday. So our women are damn good at this. 1857 96fm.ie Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. The Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. With localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more. With a 12-month guarantee. Bagged by Borgosh Energy. Right, voting is live now in the Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. It's easy to do. You go to 96fm.ie and just vote for your favourite in any one of our categories. You can vote for the one, you can vote for two or three of them, you can vote for them all. Just go in and vote. We need you to vote. Uh, here's a couple of the short lists to remind you of who you're voting for. Let's look at Best Hairdresser and the nominees. Jesse Bush, Guilty Hair and Beauty, Bounce, Fusion, or Amy Michelle Hairdressing, you might want to vote for any one of them or pop across to the category of best workplace. And you might want to vote for Stryker or the Imperial Hotel or Apple or Cope Foundation or the Ayrton Group. The shortlists are all there. Go into 96.ie and cast your vote. It's the best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths, and more with a 12 month guarantee, all backed by Board Gosh Energy. The awards presented by Cork's 96FM. We know that the schools will be going back in a few weeks' time. No doubt we'll be talking to people about the cost of books and the cost of transport and all of that. Back to school brings the usual with it. We, we assume at this stage that the schools will go back on time. Minister Norma Foley has said that uh, 
COVID or no COVID, they will go back on time in late August, early December. And we'll, we'll hope that that happens. And I'm sure thousands of parents will hope that that does happen. But the Department of Education has been distributing tens of thousands of carbon dioxide monitors to schools around the country to be in there and ready to help prevent the spread of COVID-19. We've talked about carbon dioxide monitors many times over the last few months. They monitor, literally they do what it says in the tin, they monitor the level of carbon dioxide in a room and when it gets to a, a certain level, it turns red or gives off a little ping or a beep or something. And then they open open a door or open a window and you clear out the carbon dioxide and it goes green again. Simple. And it takes only a few seconds for it to, to, uh, to do its work. But it's vitally important in the battle against COVID-19. And this kind of went under the radar a bit in the, the end of May that they were given out thousands of them. I'm assuming that they're out and I'm assuming that they're in place at this stage and it's a good start. Orla Hegarty is from the UCD School of Architecture. She's been with me on the programme before. Orla, good morning. It's a good good start. Do you know if they're being circulated? Um, I don't know if they're in the schools as yet, but I do know that the order was placed and that this is the plan for September. And uh, it's a very positive move, I think, from the department and it will help and make a difference. Am I correct in my summary of how they actually work, that they monitor the room and give off a little ping or a red light when it's at, at a high level? Yes, well, this was something we knew about before COVID because too much carbon dioxide in a room means basically that the room is getting stuffy and children aren't getting enough oxygen. So uh, when you have better uh, air quality in a room, children actually perform better. That's been measured and their concentration is better. They're less less sleepy and their behaviour is better. So uh, it's, a, it's a really good thing we need to do anyway. Um, why we're using them in a pandemic is that we know now that, that COVID is mostly caught by breathing infected air. So if you can make sure that the air in the room is being refreshed and that there's good ventilation, the risk of children breathing in the virus from somebody else is is very much reduced. So carbon dioxide monitor doesn't measure whether there's virus in the air, it measures whether people are breathing air that has been breathed out by somebody else. Because of the Uh, carbon dioxide levels. And then, is it true that once they they reach the level they they sound a little alert or they signify a little alert and how it it can only if you have good open windows it can only take a few seconds to get it right again yeah, I mean, people may not know what these look like, but they're, they're smaller and lighter than a mobile phone, so they're very portable to move between classrooms. Um, and and uh, as far as I'm aware, the ones that are ordered also have a, a light on them, so they don't just give a reading um, of how what how many parts per million of carbon dioxide. They also w- uh, will go green when it's in a safe limit and, and will turn amber and then red when the limit is high. So it will allow the teacher or anybody from a class the room, across the room to, to keep an eye on on this and then quite simply they could either take the children out for a quick run mm. around if they're the younger children or they could open doors but they can start to learn then you know they might learn that on a very still day um, they need the windows open more or they need the classroom door open as well they might find on a windy day that they need very little window open so hopefully they'll be more comfortable than they were last mm. year and do they monitor a whole building or just an individual room like would you need to put one in every classroom 
um, they monitor individual rooms or individual spaces. And, and you, know, it, you know, this is, I suppose, it isn't an exact science insofar as um, air is a bit like water. It's mixing all the time and it's moving all the time. Um, so people will need to get a sense of, you know, where the dead spots might be in a room, you know, where the airflow is better or worse. And I think people can learn that as they go. Um, I think as an initial step, there won't be one for every classroom. Uh, and that's probably to do with supply and, and what's available. Uh, but I think uh, even with what's available, I think it can be really useful because I think fairly quickly people will learn that maybe there's a classroom on the sheltered side of the building, you know, where the airflow isn't good, that maybe there's a more exposed classroom where you need very little window open to keep the airflow. Mm. Um, or that maybe places they hadn't thought about before, like the toilets, the locker rooms, the teacher's break room, um, they might be the high-risk areas and they mightn't be something that they even thought about last mm. year. Without having all the windows open and the children freezing uh, through the winter, there's got to be better ways to, to change the air frequently in a in a school. Yeah, I think this is a first step. I mean, we know um, we know already that we, we do have an issue, and, and this isn't just in Ireland, with poor air quality in classrooms, uh, because there are places where people spend a lot of time, they're sitting close together, and they're often overcrowded. Um, so we do know there's an issue there. We also know that with climate change and airtight buildings and energy efficiency, that we need to actively improve the air quality in buildings. We can't be making buildings airtight without checking that, the, that it is safe uh, for people to be in there, and that we're not developing unsafe conditions for, for disease or um, you know people not having enough fresh air for, for their health. Yeah. Um, so these are all things that need to be done. I think it is the first step. Um, if classrooms have issues where there is poor ventilation or where the bills are too high, they can also supplement it with filtration. So yeah. plug-in filter fans um, are widely available and, and relatively cheap and that's yeah. a good solution for places where people yeah. can't have drafts, maybe like a creche or, or special yeah. needs teaching. We know from our own reading, for example, that they were considering meters in, in other countries, even pre-pandemic, because it can be unhealthy, it is unhealthy to breed stale air anyway. So they were thinking, thinking of them, it's not a, it's, it's not a, is that the, you know, it's, it's not exactly new, new technology. No, not at all. And this is really the root of the pandemic. I mean, it's spreading in buildings. We know people are being told to meet outside, which we might get through the summer doing that, but we won't get through the autumn and winter. Yeah. Um, so the real issue with the pandemic is unhealthy conditions in the air in buildings. And if we can crack that, we can reoccupy every building at low risk. Yeah. So uh, it's great that the schools are taking a lead here. They're using the science to make the place safer rather than rules of thumb. And, and I think uh, the other positive is that once children start to understand this, um, they'll bring that knowledge home and, yeah. and we can have a big you know, impact. In the kids will become, will become the teachers. Do you know the way modern buildings are now, Orla, more energy efficient and, and all that, and they, they, they retain heat better and they modern insulation and stuff like that. Is it harder with those modern standards to maintain a high level of ventilation? Well, I think the problem is that we've compromised ventilation and public health for energy efficiency. So people have, uh, there's always a balance between the three uh, and we've got the balance wrong. So we need to reset the balance in our regulations so that we have warm, comfortable homes without drafts and low bills. But we also uh, look after our health, you know, because 
just because we don't see the air we breathe doesn't mean it's important. Um, you know, the statistic that's really interesting in this is that the, the surface of your lungs is about the size of a tennis court and, and you're breathing, you know, tens of thousands of litres of, of, of air over the course of, of a day. Um, so the air quality is incredibly important for people's health and well-being and we need to get that right. So we don't want to go back to the days of people living in, in drafty cold buildings, which wasn't good for their health, mm. but neither can we live in airtight boxes where yeah. we're breathing the same Ar- Architecturally, how, how do you achieve that? Like you said, we, as energy efficient and warm and comfortable as possible, but at the same time as well ventilated. How is that achieved? Well, we'll probably be moving to putting heat recovery in buildings and, and sometimes this can be done very simply in a house with just putting a hole in the wall and putting a small unit in the wall and basically what that's doing is there's a little fan in it, it's pulling in air all day but it's heating that air before it goes into the room and it's heating it using the air that's in the room already. So yeah. You're using the warm air in the room without mixing it to heat air coming in. And I think we'll be seeing this in a lot of places, schools and homes and everywhere yeah. else, because we are in a relatively mild climate, actually. Solving this problem in Ireland is a lot easier than it is in countries that have extremes of, of, of climate. Yeah, yeah, because there are dead spots in any building, particularly a school. You, you can have a dead spot in your home where there seems to be no air in or out. We all have those places. Exactly, yeah. And I think people need to understand, too, that you don't need to be freezing cold to keep the air quality good. Even cracking a window open slightly on two sides of a building or having one window slightly open downstairs and another one upstairs, yeah. um, you can keep a very good airflow in, in your home without uh, feeling that you have to, you know, you're sitting in, in outside air. I've been slagging my wife off for years. She learned it from her mother. My mother does it too. Before they go out of the house, they leave an upstairs window open at the front and an upstairs window, a small one, open at the back. They're doing it for years. I've been given out that I come in from work in January and the room and the house needs to be heated up. But they were right. The house was well ventilated. It's very good, and I think people who came through the TB era have a really good understanding of that. You know, you'll often find people who keep a, a window cracked open very slightly in a bedroom at night, uh, particularly where people are sharing bedrooms. That can make the difference between spreading disease in the room and not, you know, even a very small amount. So I think these are things that people knew in the past and maybe we've, we've forgotten. Go back to first principles. Don't we learn so much about it uh, nowadays, Orla? Thank you very much. Orla Hegarty from the UCD School of Architecture. Old first principles, you know, the, the old principles, they were the better ones. Opening a window, I, I cannot now, I'd, even in the coldest night of winter, I struggle to sleep with the window closed. I can't. Um, and we, we always have a window open, front and back of the house, unless it's really cold. And even then, when herself goes out in the morning, she'll leave an upstairs bedroom window open at the front and at the back, you know, the little ones. And that is the best thing. Yes, when you come home, you'll heat the house up, you close those windows and warm the house up. But it's the best thing, it's the safest thing, and science proves it to us. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie the lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Our Katie is a builder's daughter and she tells me 
that the way they do the ventilation these days in the modern builds is to have holes in the wall, literally holes in the wall, during construction, and that allows for better ventilation. See? It's the simplest way. It's usually the right way. 1850-715-996. Just on the weather forecast, uh, it's pretty awful for the next few days, right into the weekend and possibly into next week. And uh, He's on holidays at the moment, but as soon as he's back from his holidays, I'm going to have a chat again with Alan O'Reilly at Carlo Weather, but he's doing some tweeting while he's on holidays. The two main modelling maps that he watches, the two of them, uh, not they're not apps on the phone now. These are big modelling graphs that he puts up on his screens and he can read them. My poor mere mortal like me hasn't got a clue what he's looking at. But the two of them seem to be arguing between themselves about where the weather's going to go after the start to the middle of next week. One of them says that the hot stuff is trying to batter its way back in and the other one is saying that there's some more of this crap trying to batter its way in. And what you could end up is a battle for, if you want, bragging rights for Ireland between the good stuff and the bad stuff. Uh, He's not tweeting as much as he normally does, the man's on holidays. But we'll see where it goes. Uh, He was saying maybe a week ago that there's a possibility we get some nice weather again for the second half of August. He's not ruling that out yet, but he is saying that there's a battle going on between the two sets of predictions he relies most upon. So we'll see, we'll see where that where that leads to. We'd love to get some nice weather uh, back again. 1850-715-996. Just on Nikita and Irina. Irina was on earlier telling us about her son. He's 17. He has a tumour uh, which is growing. It's behind his nose, uh, but it's affecting his eyes. It's affecting his ears. It's affecting his sinuses. He can't breathe. He's in pain. He can't smell he can't sleep, he has to sleep sitting up he was booked to have surgery in Dublin in January but it got cancelled because of Covid and he hasn't yet had a new date for that surgery and his condition is getting worse and she's desperately worried about him and she's set up a GoFundMe because she has found a place in Germany where the surgery could be be done and we were chatting to her about it Julie was on to say 10 years ago I contacted your programme in regards to uh, the tumour like this you might remember Dennis O'Callaghan. He was unable to get his surgery in Ireland, but we managed to get it abroad under the HSE Treatment Abroad Scheme. Is this still a thing? It is indeed. It is indeed. So there is such a thing as the Treatment Abroad Scheme. But I think, and I'm open to correction on this, but I think that under the Treatment Abroad Scheme, the treatment can't be available here. You can only use Treatment Abroad if the treatment isn't available here. And the treatment is available here. He just can't get a date for it. Mr. O'Callaghan was diagnosed with a rare tumour in his windpipe. It had regrown after 30 years. He first got it when he was 17. His consultant at CUH recommended a Boston-based surgeon uh, to perform the complex operation. The family were able to apply for the HSE treatment abroad scheme. And the long story short, after a lot of fighting for it, HSE agreed and Dennis is now doing great and that's good to hear. The treatment abroad scheme does exist, uh, and it's quite a good scheme, to be fair now. But if the surgery is available here, I don't think that they will fund it. But look, it's everything's worth a try. 1850-715-996. We have been learning more, and more and more and more, uh, in Cork over the last number of years about a man called Frederick Douglass. 
And he's gone from being someone whose name you'd just see on a wall, maybe, in the Imperial Hotel, and you wonder who's he, to someone who's now celebrated with a festival week, and he is celebrated with a, tra- a walking trail, the Abolitionists' Walking Trail. Uh, Frederick Douglass came to Cork in 1845. He was born into slavery, uh, and he was a campaigner for the abolition of slavery. He spent a month here. He delivered a number of remarkable speeches, one at the courthouse, one at the Imperial Hotel, and he stayed with a family living in Paul Street, although then it was called Brown Street. And these, those are three stops on a number of stops, I think 12, on a walking trail, the Abolitionists' Trail, which was launched last week here at the city to commemorate and mark the contribution of Frederick Douglass to, to modern history and the huge part that Cork and his Irish visit in general uh, played in, in his career and his development as, as an orator and development as a as a, a staunch advocate for the abolition of slavery. One of the people who was here last week to help launch that trail was Paul Oakley Stovall. Now, Paul Oakley Stovall, if you're a fan of Hamilton, my God, who Hamilton is just one of the biggest things you've ever seen. It's on the Disney Channel. You can see it there on the Disney streaming network. It's, it's a musical based on the history of the Founding Fathers. And it's different for so many reasons. So many, so many, so many reasons. And it is huge. It's mega. And it's got four or five different touring groups now around the country, or around the world, rather, as well. So it's it's a phenomenon. It's a theatre and television phenomenon. And one of the lead actors in it is Paul Oakley Stovall. And Paul Oakley Stovall was here in Cork last week uh, to launch the walking trail. And I caught up with Paul Oakley Stovall when he returned to the United States. Paul Oakley Stovall, welcome to the Opinion Line. Delighted to have you with us at the end of the line. Frederick Douglass is a man, Paul, I must admit, I'd never heard of until about maybe 10 years ago. But, but the more I hear about and as a Corkman, I'm kind of ashamed to say that, but the more I hear about him, the more interesting he becomes. Like, he was only 12 when he was reading the speeches of, of Daniel O'Connell. Like, how did you discover his story? And, and I suppose in particular, the Cork side. Well, first of all, don't feel bad because I did an interview when I was in Cork back in February. I didn't know where Cork was. So, you know, we learn and we, we move forward and we, we grow together. Um, so, Frederick, I, I found out about it from an Irish woman uh, who I was working on a writing project. We were mentors for young writers and we were doing it over Zoom because of COVID. So she had to wake up at odd hours to join the team. But uh, we got to know each other on the side and she said, hey, do you know about Frederick Douglass? And I said, well, of course. (laughs) I'm a college educated black man. Of course, I I was almost offended that she would ask. And (laughs) And she said, oh, so you know about his time in Ireland? Silence, silence, as I looked Google real quick because I didn't believe it. And I said, well, no, what, what that, I would have known that. I would have known that. And she said, oh no, there's a, there's a, you're gonna fall down a rabbit hole. She told me about Daniel O'Connell and she, we were going down the rabbit hole and then she quickly stopped herself and said, you know, I think you should just go take it from here and see where Frederick's spirit leads you. And that's what happened. I started digging, I became quickly obsessed. I decided I need to come to Ireland. I got connected with the Douglas Week people. Next thing I know I'm in Cork. 
And I'm, I was having the same experience as you. Like, I didn't know this entire city existed, let alone that that was the heart of his time in Ireland was in Cork. He spent the most time in Cork. First time I heard about him, I was in one of our hotels in the city and I saw his name on a plaque and I said, who's he? And, and, at the Imperial. At the yeah, Imperial, yeah. That's right. And, and why should I be interested? Who's he? And it's from kind of from that day to this, I've learned more about him. Yeah. I mean, listen, I was just there last month with Frederick's great, great, great grandson. He had never been in there and I'm leading him in there to the path where his great, great, great grandfather walked and spoke and I, I had discovered one of the ballrooms that Frederick spoke in. And um, so I, could, I showed him that. And we're just casually walking through. I mean, no one knew who he was. It was, it was great. How do you think that a completely unknown American could land in Cork, spend a relatively short amount of time here and make such an enormous impression, Paul? Are you talking about Frederick or me? <laughs> <laughs> because Frederick was not unknown. Let's, let's say that. He... he, he he was very well known in the States. In fact, it was because of his notoriety that he had to flee. And I think that's when fate and the, 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 the mythology and the angels of Ireland stepped in. And that's just, the, that's the place that was chosen. And it became this magical place where he, he became the orator that we then found him to be when he returned from Ireland. Mm. He wouldn't have been well known here. So how did he get to come from the States to Ireland? So there were abolitionist groups in our, you know, Ireland had uh, long since abolished slavery in 1833, I believe, one of the first countries to do it over there. And there were networks of abolitionists and Quaker families who, uh, from Boston and Ireland, you know, writing letters back and forth, trying that, you know, the people in Ireland trying to help the abolitionists in the states to get the states to end slavery. And when this all happened, they had this network in place. And there was a price put on Frederick's head when he released his first narrative. And so they said, you know what? You need to get out of here. We have people in Ireland that will take care of you and just go there for a few days. Go there for a week and let things blow over. And then he, of course, did a speaking engagement at the Music Hall, which is now the Abbey Theater in Dublin. And he became a sensation. And they quickly realized, oh, he's going to do a speaking tour. And the, they set it up. And then when he got to Cork, I think he just hit well in Cork. Uh, he, he had spoken in Dublin. He had spoken in Waterford. He actually showed up in Cork with a bit of a cold, but he, he was on fire at that point. He had gotten a rhythm and Cork received him. The Jennings family received him so well. And um, he met Father Matthew there. And the, the, so the temperance issue was on the table and he was able to just dig in in Cork. You know, He was a very young man, relatively speaking, when he came here. 27. I mean, you know, now you and I, 27 back then was 35. You know, he already had a wife and two kids or maybe even three. And you say that today to a 27 year old and they, ah! <laughs> but so, you know, 27 felt like. It was much older then than it is now is what you're saying to me. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. At least in our perception. Yeah. yeah. Where did he learn his oratorial skills? Well, that's the thing. That's part, you know, the research I'm doing is, listen, I don't say this to to uh, kiss up to Ireland where I'd like to move and live someday. <laughs> but I think he I think he learned it there because he had a captive audience where he had no fear of anything other than giving a good speech. 
you know, in America, when he was zigzagging around talking about his book, there was danger, there was danger, you know, someone could rush up on the stage or, or they could be waiting for him when he left the stage. And I think after the first few speeches, when he realized, oh, I can just give the speech. This audience is wrapped and, and hanging on every word and they're intelligent and interested in what I'm saying and it's affecting them and, and they're having a real give and take with me. They're, they're happy to react loudly. A lot of the newspaper reports will put in parentheticals, loud groans, enthusiastic applause at certain moments. I think that's where he honed it. I think that's where he got the rhythm. That's where he learned how to hold for the applause or or where to put a certain story within the speech where he knew it would hit better. I think he learned it in Ireland. He had the talent. He just had to have a platform on which to work the muscle. Mm. He also, I think, was a bit taken aback that he could land in a city like Cork and people just saw a man. There was no judgment of him by the color of his skin, which was new to him. In fact, it was almost they would just walk by and not do anything. You know, it was almost the reverse, like nothing. You got nothing and because Irish people are like, well, show me what you got. And then I'll. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm on my way. Now, that's not to say every Irish person doesn't stop and say hello and is very friendly and kind. But I, I know what you're saying is we don't judge you on how you look. We, we, we do judge you, but it has more to do with what do you have to say? What are you, what are you doing with your life? How do you treat your family? What are, you, what are you doing? And I think that was very freeing. And most of his, most of the quotes that we attribute to him, his, his more famous quotes, they, they were written in Ireland, actually. Now, we mentioned, you mentioned earlier on, you were here in February and just the other week we had the unveiling of the, the walking tour around the city of the places that he visited. How important is it to you that we take this man and his memory so seriously? It means the world to me. I, uh, not to get to uh, Kumbaya or Ghosts and Miracles, but in May of 2019, I was in Rochester on tour with Hamilton and I took myself on a day off to the cemetery where Frederick is laid to rest. And you got to walk about over a half mile into the cemetery to find his burial plot. And there's a beautiful gravestone and even chairs for sitting because people do spend time sitting there. And I spent about three hours just laying there talking to him and saying, you know, use me, put me to use, Frederick. If you can hear me, put me to use. Uh, it's long overdue for Frederick Douglass to hit the zeitgeist. I was just speaking to a director, Charles Randolph Wright, about all the projects coming up about Frederick. It's his time, he's back in the, he's back, you know, and these things happen in this way. So the more Frederick projects, the better. And it's important because he's a self-made man. Now, I know people get prickly when they hear self-made. What I mean when I say that is he, he had the gumption, he had the audacity to say, I'm going to claim my autonomy and nothing but death will stop me. And that's, you know, that's, that's an important message nowadays. If, if taken the right way, it, it can spin out of control. I, I do, I do understand that I'm aware of that, but for people of color, for anyone who feels they are in an oppressed group, anyone who feels that their voice is not heard, Frederick Douglass is the, is the person for you. Dig into his writing. Uh, I just gave this big speech in Poughkeepsie using his words and the things he was saying could have been written yesterday, PJ. Why does he mean so much? This is deeply personal, I sense, 
Paul speaking to you? Why does he mean someone to you personally? Well, I personally have felt that uh, I, I've often found myself in rooms where my voice wasn't heard. I've often found myself in rooms where I've been misunderstood. I've often found myself in rooms where people find it unbelievable that I've had any kind of suffering as a black gay man in America because I'm, quote, well-spoken, end quote. Uh, and, and, and Frederick ran into that a lot, too. I feel like I vibrate on um, on his journey in, in many ways. People wouldn't believe his stories of how bad slavery was because of how intelligently he spoke about it. I mean, what a catch-22. When I tell people my experiences with the police, when I tell people my experiences with people telling just blatant lies about me because they don't feel that I'm behaving the way that I should, that, that I don't know my place, so to speak, and people don't believe me because of the way I talk about it. So you get you get caught in in this in this place of well, if I show you who I am and how accomplished I am, then you don't believe me when I tell you some of the wrongs that need to be righted. Hmm. Where I was thinking was that maybe the the things that Frederick Douglass was saying all those years ago and and his determination and his drive did he open the door for a man like you to be as successful as you are today? So he opened the door, he opened the window, he, uh, you know, he's holding the door still. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that means it is my responsibility to keep his words alive so that the next generation will know that there's someone. Because listen, we have no recording of his voice. We have no video that we can watch. Although I do stand on my claim that Frederick was the first ever social media influencer because he was the most photographed human being of the 19th century, and he very much curated his image. He never smiled in his photographs. He didn't want to propagate this image of the happy slave. There was nothing happy about slavery, Frederick often said. So he curated that image, and um, you know that was the that was his modern, he, you know, he was a modern man in his modern time, and that was his way of, uh, of curating his image. And I believe that it's important to do what we can to keep it alive and pass it down. I get the sense from listening to you, Paul, we've come an awful long way since the days of Frederick Douglass, but we have more work to do. Always more work to do. Always more work to do, PJ. You know, what I'm discovering in Ireland is incredible it's incredibly useful but it's also a lesson for the people of ireland what I, one of the things i'm discovering is uh frederick was there at near the onset of the great famine the great hunger yeah, yeah. and some irish people will talk to me about it and say yeah no it was an attempted genocide yeah a lot of people believe that, Paul. There was enough. There was enough to go around, but the British took it and tried to starve us to death. A lot of people believe that. Yep. A lot of people believe that, and so, um, and some won't say it. And and what I what I sense in that, as an outsider looking in, is man, there's a conversation that that you all need to have, and you're very humble and shy, and you know, you're not people who will brag and or or, or, or you know, and, and I find that we have a lot in common, the black people in America and Irish people, this sense of we've been through enough. Let's just get on with it. You, we're, we're both kind of just let's get on with it type of people, right? 
Yeah. But I, I think maybe that conversation needs to be awakened and there might be something there to open up the pride in, in the, the next generation to say, hey, we're survivors. Hey, we're incredible. You know, I, we don't want to say that. Now, maybe I should just stay out of it, you know. <laughs> it's, listen, it's a conversation and a, and a fascinating one. Right, right, right. I want to awaken that and uh, also that it was Irish women were leading the way with the abolitionist cause. Because the women played a huge role, didn't they, huge in Frederick's visit, visit while he was here? I mean, even in Cork, huge role played by women. Yes, Ann Jennings, Isabel Jennings, was arranging his speeches and helping him with the sales of his book. He would have books being sold in three different locations while he's giving the speech. And so after he came out, he'd have to stop by the three locations to meet and greet and uh, check on the books. And Isabel handled it all while she was receiving letters from uh, Dublin and sending letters to the next city to get him set up in Limerick. I mean, and then in Limerick, it's the Fisher sisters. And then in Belfast, it's Marianne McCracken. You know, but these women kind of slide by in history. Hmm. We don't give them their due, but in my series, they really get their due. Now, let's talk about the television show that you're working on. I believe yeah. it's an eight-parter. When, yeah. when and where are we likely to see it? When is, you know, one of those things where we say uh, slow and steady wins the race. We're working, we're taking different meetings. Uh, Ken Morris, uh, Frederick Baker, great-grandson, has come on board as a creative partner, and even today, there's some phone calls. Like So that we need that bigger producer to come on so that we can focus on true development. So I, I'm hoping within a year and a half, we are in production, meaning I would consider this entire year, next year and a half pre-production. Trying to pull in some uh, Irish actors, uh, Eve Hewson, Saoirse, you know, we're trying to... Wow. You know, will, will it be a documentary or a docudrama, Paul? What will it be? No, it'll, it'll, it'll be a narrative drama like The Crown. Okay. Oh, yeah. I want these actors. To, and it's funny, when I, <laughs> I have learned, I have been in Ireland long enough now to know, listen, that accent in Cork is different from Limerick, is different from Belfast, <laughs> different from Waterford, and don't play around with that. We're very don't proud of it. Don't mess yes, up. Yes, don't have someone who's not from Cork trying to do a Cork accent. Oh, no. So uh, that's going to be fun, trying to figure out, okay, so which of the great Irish actors are from Cork who will who will... Those will be the ones we choose from. And I think it'll be great fun, actually. So, you know, also part of the game is getting Ireland behind this project. So who are the right producers over there who say, oh, yeah, this is great. Because listen, as I'm writing this, I'm going, Frederick is one of the few black actors anyway. This is going to have a lot of Irish actors in it. This great. is going to be a very proud series for Ireland. And a lot of Cork people in it by the sounds of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because Cork actually gets two episodes because so much happens there. So most of the cities get one episode. And will you film here? Absolutely. You can't fake it. You can't fake Ireland. And you can't fake the way these cities, they look slightly different, even though they're built around the same time, the Georgian architecture and everything. You can't fake it. We will be very excited to see what happens here, uh, Paul. Now, also this weekend, you've been recreating one of Frederick's uh, best-known speeches in a place called, help me here, Poughkeepsie? Poughkeepsie. Tell me about that. Listen, I thought that the eight-episode project is uh, a behemoth and mammoth and difficult. Trying to cut and edit and adapt one of Frederick's speeches, because, listen, I wasn't going to speak for three hours yesterday. <laughs> I might have 
gone for it, but no one will sit there for that long. And, you know, nowadays. So I had to cut the speech. And so what I thought was the best thing to do is I actually wrote a song when I was in Cork about Frederick called Outside. And I shot a video in the Imperial Hotel of the song. And I intercut that song into the speech so that I could sing a bit of it and then make a jump to another section of the speech without it being so clumsy. So I did, it, it, it ended up just being, a, you know, I only had like 27 minutes they gave me, which seems like a lot actually, but when you're doing Frederick Douglass text, that was difficult to cut his speech down. Uh, I spoke, the city showed up. We were at the highest point in the city where Frederick spoke uh, in 1858 on that day. So it was a nice anniversary. The mayor was there. It was a big event. He, he then, after I finished, proclaimed it Frederick Douglass Day in Poughkeepsie. And the speech itself was about uh, the British emancipation in the West Indies. It was the anniversary of the British emancipation, which was August 1st, 1834. They invited Frederick to speak, but <laughs> they should have thought before they invited him because he just he took the opportunity to eviscerate the fact that he's standing there helping them celebrate that England is at their like 24th year without slaves. And he is one standing there in front of all these people in America saying, and we can't get it together. So, yeah, uh, maybe they did it on purpose. But, uh, yeah, it was quite a speech. Isn't it such a pity, like you mentioned earlier on, isn't it such a pity we don't have even one recording yeah, because people say to me, uh, one of the interviews I did on NPR before I did the event was, how do you, you know, you play George Washington and Hamilton, now you're going to play Frederick. How do you find the voice? And that's the pity, you know. Um, but but then again, you just, you, you take it as, well, that's also the benefit. That's the job of an actor, isn't it, as well, to portray, you know? That's right. It's also the benefit. I don't have anything that I have to imitate. I don't have anything that I have to try and nail. All I have to do is get the words mm. and make sense of them. I'm thinking in my mind, Paul, that he may sound or may have sounded something like, I think, a man you know well, and I would say one of the great orators of the last 40 years, 50 years, Barack Obama. I would say that, too. I would say... You take a mix of Barack Obama and mix it maybe with a little John Lewis because there was so much at stake when Frederick spoke. Mm. You know, there was literal life and death for him. But the oratory skill and the patience with which he made you lean into what he was saying, absolutely. Um, our former president, 44, Barack Obama. Who I know, I know you know well. Let's talk a little bit finally about about Hamilton, because if someone said twenty years ago, "Look, I'm going to write a musical based on the story of one of the founding fathers," it's going to be a a pop music, hip hop musical. Like, could anybody have predicted just what a phenomenon would become? Like, as a performer, do you ever stand back and say, "Wow, I'm part of this, and it's huge." I do, but for a different reason. And, and first, I'll answer your first question. Could anyone have, you know, or what would someone say to someone who said they're going to do that? I will just borrow from Michelle, Michelle Obama when uh, Lynn told her what it was about. She famously said, well, good luck with that. <laughs> she was like, what? <laughs> yeah. So I think that's, that's the general answer most people would give someone who thought they could do that. Uh, and, and then also say, I'm going to cast people of color as the founding fathers. Yeah. Throw that in. Um, 
And so what did I do? I, you know, by the time I was cast, Hamilton, the train had left the station. It was, it was the, you know, sold out massive mega hit that it is. So I guess I've had a career long enough and been in enough flops and been in enough really great shows that didn't get their due or, you know, solid shows that had a good run. And I've just been in enough things that I said, well, I can't believe this is happening, but uh, when do I have to go on? I have this many weeks. I better get it together because I got to get up there and do it. So that, that was really my attitude. I didn't take much time to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm in Hamilton. I was more in a state of abject terror that I've got to get to work and get it right. You know, there's already a legacy ahead of me. By the time I got there, there was already Chris Jackson and Carvin's Lasson and uh, uh, Nicholas Christopher had played the role and uh, Brian Terrell Clark. So I, and, and on and on and on. So I was like, well, there's already a legacy here. I've got to step into these boots and, and get this right. And you're back on stage soon. I know COVID played havoc with the touring, but, but you're back on stage soon. Yeah, we start rehearsal. I just got back to my home in Chicago uh, last night from you know the Ireland trip and then Poughkeepsie and I've got a week to get things together and we are into rehearsal and, and I don't know how the producers are doing it they're putting up five Hamiltons all over the world so uh, we, we all need to play our part and like get you know be, be on point it's such it's such a huge phenomenon Paul Oakley-Stavall thank you so much for being with us today best of luck with the new run of Hamilton and we cannot wait to see the TV show about Freddie Dulles Thank you so much. And I can't wait to have Cork be a part of it. You know, I, I want everyone in Cork to know that, or should I say Cork? I want my fiends. <laughs> You're learning my, fast. I want, my, I want my fiends and my viewers in Cork to know that, you know, I, when I first went there, I said, I'm, I'm going to live here. I love this place. Um, and I've made some great friends there. And I want the city to be a part of it. So we're not going to come bulldozing in and ignore the, the you know, the meat of what what it is to be there in court well well next time you're back and hopefully covid permitting and restrictions permitting we can do this for real across the studio yes i would love that all right paul thank you so much for being with us on the opinion line today thank you for having me can we just talk the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. It's time to vote. It's time to vote. In the Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. Go to 96FM.ie. Check out the shortlists for all categories and vote for your favorite. The Best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee backed by Board Gosh Energy. Only on Cork's 96FM. Lawrence Fenton is the author of a book called Frederick Douglass in Ireland, The Black O'Connell, which was published by Gill. Uh, Lawrence, good morning to you. Uh, good morning, PJ. Good. As I said to Paul, th- this man about whom I knew little 10 years ago is a fascinating character. The connection between him and Daniel O'Connell uh, is worthy of exp- exploration, even briefly on, on the programme. Is it true that as a young lad, he learned English by reading O'Connell's speeches? Not quite. There's an element of that. Um, one of the books that he got very young was um, The Columbian Orator. It's a collection of speeches. One of the speeches was on Catholic emancipation, but it wasn't by O'Connell. Um, but later, 
it's it's less confirmed. Later, he ha- he has referenced speeches of of O'Connell and reading them when he's young, but it's not it's not crystal clear, not definite. But he's certainly very aware of O'Connell, and he was aware of the Catholic emancipation question. And um, he said that he used to hear O'Connell's name in the curses of his masters, and that he knew O'Connell was a friend. I see. And he met him when he came here, didn't he? He did, yes. He went to a speech of O'Connell's in Dublin in Conciliation Hall and um, he was given a, an entrance ticket by a friend of his in Dublin and it was kind of towards the end of the speech. First of all, O'Connell was speaking in general about uh, this is time of the repeal movement and he was speaking about that first, but then he ended by speaking about slavery and American slavery and this is a common uh, team of O'Connell's. He'd been speaking on this for 15, 20 years and so um, Douglas was thrilled to hear him speak about it because at the time O'Connell didn't know that Douglas was in the room. He was just doing it anyway. And then Frederick gets um, kind of pushed up towards the front and O'Connell's son John sees him and recognises him and brings him up on stage and so they they, they share a few moments on stage and um, O'Connell um, introduces him to the crowd as the black O'Connell of the United States. Wow. Wow. And and O'Connell was quite an elderly man at that stage, wasn't he? He was, yeah. No, he was only a year, a couple of years away from dying. He was already kind of feeling frail from his time in prison. Um, but yeah, he was still, um, you know, happy to, um, you know, attack mm. um, the institution of slavery in America, even though um, some of his followers uh, would have told him to, you know, tone it down because it was getting, you know, it was hindering their fundraising efforts for the repeal movement in America. Isn't it amazing that, Lawrence, you know, most people, I include myself, 10 years ago, I had, I I remember being inside the Imperial Hotel and seeing a plaque with the name of this guy on it. I said, who was he? And and now we commemorate him with books and, and a walking trail and a television show on the way. It's remarkable. It is, yeah. No, no, he's kind of, um, I guess he's kind of a kind of a character that you, no matter what kind of area you're interested in, whether it's history, literature, politics, social justice, he kind of appears in lots of different areas. And so I would have been only kind of vaguely aware of him for a long time. It was only kind of around 2008, around the, bis- the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade, that I um, started hearing more about him spending time in Ireland. And um, just because of the kind of the stature of him, of the man that he became because of the time that he he came here when he was still, um, you know, kind of developing as a speaker and as an orator and as an abolitionist. And because of the timing that he arrived here just at the beginning of the famine, it's just, um, it all seemed remarkable, you know, kind of remarkable linkages and uh, intersections there. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, and, and now he's very well and rightly commemorated in the city. Your book, your book is available. Is it? Can we just walk into a place like Waterstones and get it, or what's the story? Uh, yeah, I assume so. Yeah, yeah, that or, or else on um, Gill, um, the Gill website or something. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. That's Lawrence Fenton, author of Frederick Douglass in Ireland, the Black O'Connell. Sarah McGreedy, McGreedy is the co-founder of the Douglas Week. And again, Sarah, just briefly the, the, the commemorating this incredible man. Uh, it's it's so important for Cork now to do that, isn't it? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Hi. Yeah, it absolutely is. I think, you know, even as we've seen, you know, just from speaking to to Lawrence and Paul as well, Douglas, he's such an important figure in Ireland. But, you know, 
I think especially even for, for students in the US, they learn about Douglas and his time in the US, but really Ireland was such an important place to him. And Cork, especially because of the time he spent here and the friendships that he forged here. And I think it's really important that we're drawing out those connections between the past and the present and between Ireland and America through Douglas Week. Yeah. The, the walking trail is very accessible. It goes through just the, the, it, the points on it are the places where he spoke and the places where he stayed, correct? Yes, absolutely, yes. So uh, the the trail is really a, a, a legacy project of Douglas Week. This was something that was two years in the making. Um, you know, we started in kind of, yeah, about two years ago thinking about a one-day symposium for Frederick Douglass and this, this turned into, um, you know, this massive online event series in February and we chose February for, for the event series because uh, Douglas's self-chosen birthday was the 14th of February, Valentine's Day, um, as an enslaved person who didn't know his birthday. So we, the trail really grew out of this and it was wonderful to meet uh, kind of a lot of our partners in person to launch this with, um, you know, Cork City Council, the Lord Mayor, Colm Kelleher, Chief Executive Anne Doherty, to have Kenneth B. Morris Jr. here, Douglas's great, great, great grandson, and see him walk these these footsteps of his direct descendant. And of course, Paul writing this limited series about Douglas in Ireland. And for myself and Dr. Caroline Schroeder, the the lead um, project coordinator of Douglas Week, um, for Adrian Mulligan, for for Lawrence Stanton, for for Kristen Leary. It was just fantastic to have everyone here and see kind of, you know, we started the trail um, at Kevin O'Brien's mural of Frederick Douglass. um, And that's, you know, it's an electrical box. um, And he made this as a response to um, the Black Lives Matter protests in the US last year and the murder of George Floyd. So as I say, you know, there's a real um, synergy here between, uh, you know, connecting Douglas and, you know, other abolitionists to the the, the sort of struggles that we face today. You know, Sarah, when you think about it, um, for all the right and wrong reasons, people used to come to Ireland for for castles and leprechauns. Uh, Now they'll come to Ireland (laughs) to mark a remarkable and commemorate a remarkable man and the huge role he played in the history of abolition of slavery. Sarah McQueedy, co-founder of the Douglas Week. Thank you. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Quick reminder to you that our Back Garden Festival is up again. Up and running again. The exclusive online station with all of your biggest hits from your favourite festival stars because for yet another summer we can't have gigs and we can't have festivals but they're there online next best thing with Harvey Norman and JBL your specialist in sound this summer listen on the app or go to 96fm.ie and on that subject we'll finish up today uh, with our friends at FM 104 Jim Jim was talking this morning to Brezzy from the Blizzards and Danny from the Coronas with a view to just exactly what is happening in the music business these days. Good morning, lads. How's it going, lads? How you doing, guys? How Good. are you? Good. Um, it's it's a tough time that isn't getting any easier, boys. Yeah, I mean, like it's just it's so frustrating with the lack of roadmap. And I've I've spoken with Brezzy about this before. There just doesn't seem to be any dialogue. There's no plan. It's so frustrating when you feel like your industry 
is is just being overlooked. There seems to be preferential treatment for the GAA. You know, there's going to be forty thousand people inside in Crow Park in, in two weeks' time. You know, and it, and it's we're always just on the long finger. But yet, up until September or with no plan, there's only going to be two hundred people allowed outdoors at any of our concerts. Like so, you know, it is so frustrating when when other other industries seem to be opening and and yet ours is the only only sector in Captain Martin's portfolio that doesn't seem to have you know a, a reopening plan a roadmap you know you were you guys were due to play um how did you find out or was there any notice given or not at all no we found out yesterday uh, uh, I was just out and about and someone sent me the link saying that and and listen you know, I'm really disappointed that Electric Picnic isn't happening. You know, we were due to play it, as you say, but that's not really what has me the most upset. I was almost not surprised that it hasn't happened. You know, if the government don't put a, re- a reopening plan and roadmap in play, of course the, the county council is going to say, well, no, like if you can only have 200 people at other venues, of course we're not. But if the government got involved and say, yeah, we're good to let 40,000 people into Crow Park, you know, it's fine. Like, I'm down playing for my local GAA team on the local field, playing junior football, and the same amount of people can come in and watch me on the side of the pitch, and they're untested, unvaccinated, and, you know, can come down to the field and watch me play junior football, and and that's the same amount of people that can come see us in a proper gig. You know, our industry, you know, we have the most highly... It's the highly legislated. We've really skilled staff who could know how to put on safe events, and you know this is just isn't happening. And then you see all these people going up north to gigs. Like in the next two months, are going to be a hundred thousand people going up to Phelan Pub, Customer Square, and other festivals up in the north of Ireland, traveling to Scotland and the UK. Transmit is happening in September. Forty thousand people, you know, and they were as stringent lockdown as us as well, you know. So. It's just really frustrating when you, when you see that sort of stuff happening outside Ireland and, and there just seems to be no no movement here, you know. Do you think, Brezzy, that uh, there's, there's, no, there's no movement on it because they don't know what to do? Do you think they just, their hands are tied because they just don't know where to go with this? Or if you, if you could sit down with, with the government today, what would you say to them? I tell them to stop watching Spinal Tap and thinking that's the way the industry runs. It's one of the most highly skilled, incredible industries. Uh, you know, there's this perce- I think genuinely there's a perception within potential decision makers and, and governor, you know, people who are governing the country that they have a perception of what the industry is. These people build cities and fields. These are, these are incredibly attractive to other industries as well. And we're losing these people in the events industry. And I think what I've started to realize, first and foremost, to say that the reopening plan will be given at the end of August was incredibly cynical. It was a, a direct move, I think, to power play the electric picnic because electric picnic said we'll move it till the end of September. So we have enough time at that stage, probably 80 to 85 percent of the adult population will be vaccinated. Um, and I thought it was incredibly cynical, uh, a lack of urgency. Uh, the decision made before they went in summer recess. And let's be honest around the GA. I'm delighted 40,000 people are going into the GA. I think it's amazing. And this isn't about pit, pit, pitting industries against each other. We're all, we all are collective in this. It's about the same consideration being given to each industry. And that's just hasn't happened. So what I've started to realize here is with government in any of the other work I've done, sometimes you have to remove the emotive argument out of it because they don't really listen to that. If you break this down to economics, 
that's what they listen to. And for example, there was a piece put up in um, Billboard magazine, which is the industry standard magazine, that in 2019, 132 billion euro was generated from the events industry in, the, in America with over 12 million people employed. Now, that's quite relative to Ireland as well. These figures are quite similar across, because Ireland, it was up to one point, uh, some, some figures saying 3 billion to the economy with 35,000 people employed, including musicians, security, you know, catering staff, everybody you need to run an industry. So breaking that all down, even from an economic argument, they've made an absolute balls of this. And it is pure political will. That is all it is. And Catherine Martin, to be fair, has been very, very good around the grants. She's been very proactive around it. But she's missed the ball on this. this. It's a strategy we need, a reopening plan. For example, I have a podcast tour in October. I just got called yesterday to say that one of the places, Galway, is sold out. A capacity, I think, of 500, but we're only allowed to sell 100 tickets. So I'm not even allowed to sell tickets. Going, into, they, they are selling tickets at current restrictions. It, it feels... Is, of no benefit. It, it, it's costing us money to even plan stuff. It's just so, so exhausting. And Jim, Jim, just one thing on, on what you said there. I know for a fact the promoters and Epic Working Group, which is the event production industry COVID working group, met with government a year ago and laid out all these different strategies of how you could phase the reopening of venues. So like, it's, it's not a question of just saying, oh, they, they don't know how to do it. There's lots of it. And you, you, there was like a softly, softly approach where we just increased the capacity slowly, slowly. There was one waiting until 80% was, was, was vaccinated and, and going, opening it a little bit bigger. So there's been plenty of talk there. And, and, and as, as Bresi says, I totally agree. Kicking it down the road to the end of August is so frustrating. I mean, as I said to you guys earlier on, you know, when there's a bit of controversy and Captain Savone has 50 people inside the Marion Hotel, they, they're meeting with Fortier Ireland today mm. to sort that out. There you go. That's the voices of uh, Brezzy from the Blizzards and Danny from the Coronas speaking to our friend Jim Jim on FM 104 about the state of the music industry in the wake of the cancellation of Electric Picnic. A lot of people unhappy. And look, public health is public health and it's got to come above and beyond everything. But the industries are getting increasingly itchy and restless to get back to work. And it is hard to blame them. That's it. The programme edited by Fergal Barry, produced and researched by Katie O'Keefe. And we'll see you tomorrow, just after nine. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. See MIG.ie.